Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of The Storybox, where I, your host, Jay Phantom has the utmost privilege and honor to unbox the amazing stories of some incredible people from all walks of life and experiences. I'm delighted and grateful that you're here today. Now let's dive into the story box and hear more about our guest today. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the Storybox podcast. I've actually wanted to release this episode for quite a while now, but really struggled to find a perfect time, if there is such a thing, to actually release it. But with the state of the world uh, right now and everything that is going on in, in terms of unrest, this false information being publicized, yes, I said it, there is a lot of false information out there, a lot of clickbait. Uh I felt like my next guest is the perfect man to sort of come on and really shed some light into a lot of these issues that are happening in the world. Now, we actually did this interview a while ago. Dave Rubin is my guest today, in case you were wondering. Uh, Dave and I actually did this interview. He was one of the first ones to actually believe in what I was doing, come on the story box and really just have an amazing conversation. This was just when... He brought out his latest book, Don't Burn This Book. It has since become a New York Times bestseller, uh, selling hundreds of thousands of copies. Um, he's also the founder and host of The Rubin Report over on YouTube and Apple Podcasts. Uh, Apple Podcasts, he, he gets thousands upon thousands, even millions of downloads. And same with YouTube. He's spoken to many high-profile people like Bob Saget, Roseanne Barr, Richard Lewis, politicians like John McCain, Gary Johnson, and thought leaders like Jordan Peterson, Sam Harris, Ben Shapiro, religious leaders too, Bishop Barron and Rabbi Wolpe, uh, if I'm saying that correctly, and TV legends like Larry King and John Stossel and so many others. He's got a very wide and diverse audience. He's able to take information and really break it down to make us all understand what it's really about. And I felt that now with so much information being put out there in, into the world, we are really in a, a epidemic for, or a struggle, I should say as well, for our freedom. And who, who better to come on and talk about freedoms and, and liberties and all that than Dave Rubin himself. So I hope you guys really enjoy this one. This is, uh, I'm not too much on the political sense, but we focus more on his story. Then we dive into some of those tougher questions as well. Uh, I just thought that it'd be best for everyone to know really 
There's always two sides to every story. Dave and I get a talking all about that on this episode. So I know you guys are going to love it uh, in some way, shape or form. <laughs> so with that being said, my friends, please, if you do like this one, subscribe on Apple Podcasts for more. Share it around to your friends and family members that need to hear this episode. Uh, leave a five-star rating and review over on Apple Podcasts. Your support is greatly appreciated and um, let's help build this community of the Storybox. Let's make it bigger and every single time I release an episode, uh, 1% better, right? That's that's um, what I'm aiming for, to reach as many people as I possibly can in the world. So thank you so much, guys. So let's dive into the Storybox and hear Dave Rubin's story. Thank you. It is good to be with you. Uh, it has been quite an adventure. That was quite an intro. Thank you. Uh, I hope I can live up to all of that good stuff. <laughs> I'm sure you can and more. So I am really looking forward to this interview. But before we get stuck into your backstory and why you do what you do, I usually have one question that I love asking people, and that is, what is your definition of success? That's a great question. It's quite a way to start off an interview. I think success is that you wake up with purpose. Mm. That you wake up and you have a day that is filled with things that add meaning to your life. Now that often is work, um, but hopefully it also involves your home life and your spouse and maybe your kids or your family or your local community or your friends. But I would say basically success, I, I don't judge my success now really by by monetary success or material things. You know, it's nice. You know, I have, I have a couple bucks now, which is nice. And I, I have a nice house where we built my studio and all that. But that really isn't what I view success. What I view success is I have purpose every day when I wake up. Mm. And, and especially right now with the re- release of this book, it's like I don't have a free minute during the day. But I'm not just doing stuff that I don't want to have a conversation like this with people literally all share thoughts on uh, what's going on in my life and what I, gives me purpose. And I think, through that, I have found success. Mm, that's a good answer, man. And in terms of this idea or this definition of purpose for you, how can someone find purpose in their own life, do you think? I mean, it's probably the hardest thing because it's mm. like saying what's the meaning of life. You know, I, I believe that finding purpose really is the meaning, that that's how you make meaning in your life, that you if you create a world around you, where you're doing something you find valuable, you will surround yourself with people that are probably doing something similar. They may not mm. be doing it at the same level. They may be at a different part of the quest. Um, but I find that the more that I do what I think is right, the more that I say what I actually believe, um, the more that I've encountered like-minded people. And then, mm. and then that I think is actually how we can all sort of repair the world. Mm. So, um, I think the important, I think the important thing is, is going out there and doing what you believe and trying it. It doesn't mean you will be successful right off the bat. In most cases, you won't be successful for quite some time. You know, I had a lot of struggling years as a comic and a whole bunch of stuff before this. You know, people always seem like, oh, you're an overnight success. And it's like, mm. well, where were you the other 20 years? <laughs> yeah. It's interesting, isn't it? Like people often look at where you are at this point right now and they kind of forget the journey that led up to you getting to where you are today. So I'm interested in terms of your beginnings because what I read in in the, the intro was you went from this left mentality or mindset 
was that part of your your upbringing and your home life? Well, you know, I think most people um, in an American perspective, but I think this broadly throughout uh, a Western perspective, so UK, Australia, mm. I think generally you're sort of brought up with a lefty perspective. So in an American sense, it's kind of like, oh, Democrats, good, Republicans, bad. Liberals care about poor people. Conservatives care about money. You know, Democrats are anti-war. Republicans are for war. Like that's just sort of like the basic factory setting stuff that most of us are, are sort of almost born with in a way, especially in America. And then the, the quest, I think, if you want to be a true free, free thinking person is to break free of that factory setting. And, and I love the phrase factory setting because it's like when you get a television or you get a computer, it comes with those basic settings that everyone comes with. But then you might want a little more brightness or a little more contrast or on your computer, your screensaver is going to kick in at a different point. That's sort of what life's about, that we're all sort of given this sort of equal thing. You know, certainly mm. in a Western country, uh, sense. It's like in America, if you're born in America, you're free. You're mm. free. There's no laws stopping you from doing whatever you want to do. Uh, we're all treated equally. It doesn't mean that we're all going to have success. You may have to work harder. Some people are born in a lot of money. Some people aren't. Some people are, have great physical gifts. Some people don't. That's all what the challenge of life is to find your place in the universe. Mm. But I think if you're born in the West, you're born free. And I think that a lot of people are sort of born with this factory setting thing that sets them up as a lefty first. And it takes a lot of time to break out of that because you have to, you know, it's sort of like Neo in the matrix. It's mm -hmm. why the red pill scene is so, uh, so often mean mm -hmm. because it's like, you know, Morpheus, uh, basically says to him, you know, if you want to continue living in a dream and not know what reality is, go ahead and take this blue pill. But if you want to know what reality is, you got to take this red pill. Mm. And I think a lot of people are taking the red pill right now, just realizing that a lot of the stuff that they were taught wasn't exactly right. And they're trying to figure out new ways to look at the world. Mm. That's interesting because in Australia, politics is very different. Like we have liberal and we have labor, which is two different sides of the, the spectrum. And one side believes one thing and the other side believes another thing. And one side provides more value. Whereas, you know, it, it's more or less like what you believe in what that side does and the leaders and, and all that sort of stuff. Like I'm not so heavily focused on politics in, in, in a sense, like American politics that I'm meaning. So what, what is this for those people that don't know, what is this lefty mindset and how can someone break out of it? Yeah. Well, I'm glad you asked me that because you know, when I've talked to a couple other Australian podcasters, my dog's very excited right now. <laughs> Uh, I've talked to a couple other Australian podcasters and I've talked to people in the UK and a few other countries. And through that, when I say liberal, liberal means something different to you guys in Australia than yeah. it means to people in the UK. And it means something different here in America. So when I talk about, about leftism, let's first talk about leftism, which is, which is socialism, collectivism. The idea basically is that the state is somehow inherently good Mm. And if we can just give the state enough money, meaning take enough money from some people, that the state will just organize us in a way that will be good. I simply don't believe that is a proper way to govern. It's, it's completely reversed of how the founders of the United States set everything up. They wanted the people to, in effect, be able to govern themselves. They were escaping the king. Mm. What socialism offers, and they do it with a smiley face. They say, oh, you'll have free this, free that. You know, we're going to give you all of this stuff. But what they're not telling you is we have to take your freedom to do that. We have to take your choice away. 
to do that. So Mm -hmm. when I talk about progressivism or leftism, that's what I'm talking about. Now, a lot of people think that that is liberalism also. And this is where the liberals have sort of failed. So when I talk about liberalism, I'm talking about classical liberalism, which is sort of the, the Enlightenment era liberalism that means you believe in individual rights, which is what I described before. Everyone in a society that's legally there should be equal under the law. And then you want the light touch of government. If something can't be solved by the market, solved by private enterprise, you want some government involved, but you don't want the government to have to do any, uh, everything. Mm. And what has happened is that the progressives sort of saw the liberals and the liberals are kind of open-minded and the progressives just came in and they kind of infected the host and basically destroyed liberalism. So, so when I talk about my version of liberalism, that probably makes more sense to you in Australia as like mm. a libertarian, mm. meaning that I don't really want the government to do much of anything. Um, so a classical liberal and a libertarian in effect are, are almost the same thing. I would say a liberal is maybe a little more uh, okay with some state power where libertarians really want to disassemble as much state power mm. as possible. And then, you know, then on the other side of that, you have conservatives and conservatives generally, uh, there's usually a religious attachment to it, but not always. There are some secular conservatives, uh, but also conservatives have more of a focus on sort of the time tested fundamental belief, uh, you know, in family and in unity and to keep away all of the sort of bad ideas that would break those things down. Mm. So conservatives are on the right. Libertarians are on the right. I would say classical liberals are at this point on the right. And then really what we're all sort of opposing right now is progressivism. Because Mm. if you told me that progressivism was the progress towards equality, meaning equality under the law, well, then I would be a progressive. But progressivism, we've already accomplished equality under the law. Progressives are now trying to prog- to progress to a place where they can reorder the whole game. And that I am not interested in. Mm. And, I, and I find it to be very dangerous. So in your experience and having spoken to some pretty high profile politicians over the, over the years as well, and in your, your own opinion, having studied political science as well, do you believe there is a, I guess, I'm not going to say perfect, but a, a, a better way to sort of govern and manage the country and the nation rather than just having all of these political parties pop up and, and say they're, they're, they're the best way. Believe us. I think we've done it. We've done it pretty damn well in the United States. Our, our system itself, the idea that we have uh, three branches of government, the Mm. legislative branch, which is supposed to write the laws, uh, the executive branch, that's the president, he's supposed to sign the laws and the judicial branch is supposed to make those, make sure those laws are legal. That's a pretty great system of checks and balances that really goes out of its way to make sure that no system, no person, no group becomes too powerful. It's not a perfect system, but I would be leery of anyone saying that they could bring about a perfect system. Mm-hmm. This is what progressives do. They try to tell you, if we were in power, we could fix all of your problems. There'd be no poverty. There would be, you know, we'd fix the environment. We'd fix all these things. And it's just not true. It's not true. We've done, I think, a pretty damn good job of freeing people to live the lives that they want, which is, by the way, why everyone loves America still. Everyone still mm-hmm. wants to come to America. Americans don't leave. The only people that leave America are billionaires who are sick of the taxes. But nobody really leaves America. So I don't know that there's a better system. That doesn't mean we can't tweak the system every now and again. That doesn't mean that, you know, right now our Congress, you know, the Senate 
and the House of Representatives, they don't really function that well. They don't mm. do much of anything at this point. So, so I'm a little concerned about that. I would say, you know, a lot of us also, we sort of, it's funny because we left uh, the United Kingdom because of we, we ruled the king, and yet a lot of people think the president here is the king, as if he's supposed to do everything. But the mm. guy is just one third of the government. That's it. And I know, obviously, around Trump, there's a certain cult of personality to it also. Um, <laughs> but I would say our system is as close, as close to perfect as you can get. And even for the flaws in our system, I would document the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, that you have God-given rights. The state did not make you free. It can take your freedom, but it didn't make you free. That is, that is some brilliant stuff that I think mm. most people on earth, if they understood what living freely truly is, would love to have those documents. Mm. So do you think there's a, we are working towards in, in America for that, for that sense, we are working towards becoming more free and a more freer society? Well, we're in a struggle for freedom right now. I mean, even what's happening with COVID right now, it's like mm. we're locked in our houses. I'm here in California. We're not allowed to go to the beach. Yeah. Uh, in many ways, that is, that is against our fourth amendment, which is our right to assembly. But right now, in effect, that has been suspended. So I'm very worried that this is the first time in a long time that, you know, some of our, our true rights are being eroded away. And that's why I want the states to figure out the best way to open up possible. We cannot live in, in our houses like we're hamsters in a cage mm. all the time. And that doesn't mean there's not going to be any risk on the other side. Of course, there's going to be risk. Of course, there's going to be risk. Is it possible that if we start opening up that some more people are going to get sick suddenly? Of course. But at some point, we have to start living again. Nobody, we all know we can't do this forever. Mm. And the more they just pretend that, oh, we have to wait till nobody's going to get sick. Like, that's not an honest way of, of showing us what the problem is. Mm. It's very interesting, I think, in, in this time especially, because our rights as human beings as well, in Australia, for that fact, they're being challenged as well. I mean, we're still in lockdown. They've been releasing certain, I guess, uh, restrictions for us, but we're still ultimately meant to be in lockdown. And I was reading the other day this very interesting article about, I think it's seven steps of a totalitarianism society. Do you believe in, in your experience and, and having spoken to so many people regarding politics and freedoms and liberties and all that, that we are heading there? I think it's very possible that the seeds are being planted for mm. that right? Like we're trapped in our houses, as you just said. Yeah, they're kind of opening up a little bit and we're seeing some states opening up here, but I'm not open here in my state of California. Mm. So I don't mean that to say there's some grand conspiracy, some globalist conspiracy that is trying to enslave all of us. I don't mean it that way, but I mm. do mean that when people are nervous, people that want power have good opportunity to take power. And, you know, it's like this beach thing here in California. Uh, like I know Australians love a good beach. I was at the beach in Perth and, and you guys know how to do beach lifestyle. Right, right? Okay. Yes. Um, and, and the thing is that, you know, here, all they did was say the beaches are closed. They didn't explain anything. They didn't say, Hey, instead of closing all the beaches, we're going to put them at half capacity. And when you park your car, you have to make sure your car isn't next to anybody else. And only groups of four or less can come. That would have been a mature way to deal with it. But instead mm. they just say, no, the beach is closed. And that does make me worried that authoritarianism is on the rise because it's like, why are we just listening to edicts by people? Why do they not explain things to us? Yeah. And maybe at some level we've grown very fat 
we've grown very fat on our on our uh, freedoms, and we don't even know when some bad ideas are spreading. Mm, definitely, man. It's very interesting to see, and I'll be curious to watch what happens in the coming months and possibly years to come. Uh, I do want to focus on a little bit about your backstory a little bit, and you you said you did a stand-up comedian. So did you always want to get into comedy or politics? Which one came first? <laughs> I used to be funny in another life. Now I talk <laughs> about politics all the time. Um, you know, I always wanted to be a comic, actually. From when I was seven years old, I saw Bill Cosby himself, which was his famous special, which was the, the, the dentist routine in there and the chocolate mm. cake routine. And, you know, of course, obviously, when you mentioned Bill Cosby, now people have other associations, but he was he was a groundbreaking comic who mm. woke me up to comedy. And then, and then I just fell in love with comedy. I fell in love with comedians from, you know, George Carlin and Richard Lewis and Jerry Seinfeld and now Larry David and all these guys that, you know, being a comedian, a, a good comic is saying something true. And, and through saying something true, if you can laugh at it, it's a little bit easier to understand. Mm. So I always said to my friends, it was like, one of us, was going to be a comic because I had a bunch of funny friends. We were always making fun of each other and pointing out absurdities and all that. And I did stand up for about 12 years in New York city. I had some great successes in it. I had the struggle years of being a comic and everything else. And the funny thing for me now is, um, I'm not, I don't really do stand up anymore, but when I was on tour with Jordan and when I'm traveling mm. throughout the country, if I see that I have a night open, I'll usually book that club. And I, you know, now because I have a following, I can sell out a club. And I don't really do traditional stand-up, like what's the deal with you yeah. know your shoes. I do like I just kind of get up there and I wing it and I have fun and I enjoy talking to everybody and I get the crowd going and I give away T-shirts and I get people yelling at each other and <laughs> and do just like a free for all and it's it's very different than traditional stand-up, uh, but I find it refreshing and nice and and because I don't need it anymore, I can enjoy it in a way that was tough uh, before because when you need it, it's like when you need anything, you can't fully enjoy it. Were you the class comic? You know, I wasn't the class clown, but I was the guy that was kind of next to the class clown getting the secondary laugh. So if the class clown sort of broke up the whole class, I would comment on what he was doing after he did it. That was more mm -hmm. of my thing, which actually, I guess, makes sense in retrospect. I mean, I became a talk show host and I knew how to read a room very early mm -hmm. on. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So where did the political science come into it? Like, did you get sort of um, fed up with comedy or why did you choose politics? Because that's so far away from, in some respects, it's actually quite similar, <laughs> but it's so like yeah. in terms of career-wise, they're so polar opposites in a way. In a certain way, but I was always interested in politics. My, my family, although nobody was involved in politics directly, my family was always very... Uh, political in that we would debate all of the topics. All our oh, holidays nice. were, you know, adults sitting around the table. Everybody's, everybody's arguing about everything. And I remember being at the kids' table, always trying to get to the adults' table because I thought whatever they were talking about was interesting, you know, mm. debating anything, foreign policy, abortion, whatever it might be. And then, you know, you'd get heated sometimes and then uh, dessert would be served and, and we'd stop and we'd be <laughs> just fine. Um, so I think, so I think then, and then I went to college and I, and I had that interest. So I was a political science major and I was just always interested. I was always also interested in news in general. And I always liked doing current events when I was a mm. kid, you know, who, who, what, when, where, why, how, uh, I always liked doing that kind of stuff. And 
politics was free. Everyone's political all the time, which I think is a little dangerous, actually, um, which is also why I try to bring a little sanity to the game because, you know, a lot of it is just is very insane. And I think the more, if you're just endlessly political and that's the only joy you get out of life, you have a life of misery ahead of you. Mm, definitely. That's really good, man. I have, I have uh, one more question. Oh, sorry. A few more questions for you. One is what yeah. was one of the biggest lessons that your father or mother taught you growing up that you still remember to this day? Well, it's the same lesson because this is, I, I think, more than anything else. And I, I mentioned this at the uh, the acknowledgments of the book. Um, my parents have been married like 48 years. We've been in the same house that I grew up in since I was three years old. They still live there right now. My, my sister and her husband and kids are living there with them in the middle of the virus. My parents, um, they, they taught us family. They taught mm. us about family. You got to be there for family. That's, that's really the most important thing there is. We still uh, get together for holidays whenever we can. I try to host some here. I, I go back to New York for others. Um, you know, I'm very close with my, my brother and sister and their spouses. And uh, we've been doing, you know, like everybody else, we've been doing Zoom family dinners and, you know, <laughs> have a glass of wine and everything else. You know, just the importance of family because, you know, you can have friends and you can have Twitter buddies and Facebook things and all that. And of course, lifelong friends are wonderful and new friends are great too. I don't mean to dismiss any of that. Uh, but there's something about the family. You come from these people, they and you know their parents or your grandparents and all mm. of that stuff. It, it adds to something that is that is deeply human. And I think we forget that sometimes. And, and mm. I think, by the way, that people are waking up to it a little bit right now because yeah. you know it's like I haven't hugged my mom in over two months. That's I, I want to hug my mom, you know. And I think mm. a lot of people are thinking that. Yeah. I was speaking to someone the other day actually about that very thing. They've been doing Zoom meetings, and I'm like, how in the world does that work? Like, <laughs> it's interesting. But um, yeah. when when you were, I guess, growing up and, and you were a comic as well and doing stand-up and you're going through all the challenges, what would you say was your biggest challenge through that and also uh, something that sort of built up your resilience as a result? Well, it's probably the same thing, which is that you just have to not quit. And I know that sounds kind of like glib or something but like when you're doing stand-up and you're in those struggle years when you're not getting paid and you're trying to figure out what you're doing and you know here in america we did something called barking which i'm sure you guys your comics are doing it too where you got to stand out on the street corners handing out tickets trying to get people to show up and you might perform for four minutes in front of six people and mm. two of the people don't even speak english and you know and you're out there and it's miserably cold or it's raining or the rest of it it's like that's that's not fun but what you learn through that is that hard work and dedication pays off like mm. when i think back to those i spent years on these street corners six nights a week sometimes two hours a night doing that in in major snowstorms and no matter what was going on um i was doing it in, in uh right after 9 11 which was seriously wow. weird and uncomfortable and the rest of it and um what i i look back on it and i'm like i don't know how the hell i did it how mm. did i do it Sometimes it would be so cold, I'd put on two pairs of pants and double socks just to stand outside to go do stand-up, you know? And I don't know how I did it, but I guess it's sort of that's what life's about. Like when you're young, you just do stuff and know why you're doing it. And then you look back on it one day and you're like, holy cow, I did that. Mm -hmm. So I think just that that work ethic, you got to work hard and it's going to suck, you know? Nothing's easy. Nothing, nothing that's worthwhile in this world is easy. If it was mm -hmm. easy, everyone would do it. If you exactly. really want something, 
you better be prepared to make a lot of sacrifices for that thing. Mm. I'm I'm curious to know when did this uh, meeting with Jordan Peterson come about, and how did it come about actually? Yeah, so it was about uh, well, we first met. Uh, gosh, it's about three and a half years ago now, and we first did our first interview was on uh, Google Hangouts. I was building this studio and have mm. yet and. A lot of people were talking about him on Twitter and I did this chat with him on video and our internet wasn't great here and it was very choppy and I could barely see him at times. And, and we finished the interview and I thought, man, that was either the smartest, most interesting person I've ever spoke to or he's a complete nut. <laughs> and then over, then over the course of the next two years, you know, I got to know Jordan quite well. We, we had him on the show in here many times. We toured together for a year and a half. And what I saw was a guy who was honestly fighting for what he believed in, who was writing things that were true who is helping people turn their lives around. Mm. Uh, you know, the 10 days or so that we spent in Sydney, I'm sorry, in Australia, uh, was, was some of the best parts of the tour that we had. I, I absolutely loved Australians. I loved the country. Uh, you know, got to hang out with the koala, did all of that kind of <laughs> stuff. Um, and, uh, you know, what I love, though, about Australians is you guys have a great sense of humor also. I, mm. there's, there's very big similarities with Americans. You guys don't like political correctness. Um, and, and, you know, to do our, the last that Jordan and I did together was the Sydney Opera House. Mm. And it was our only matinee show the whole tour. It was a beautiful day. And I'm sure you've been there and it's, you know, all the people outside and it's gorgeous and the theater is incredible. And I didn't know that the Opera House actually is a theater in the round, meaning there's audience completely surrounding you. You, you mm. know, most theaters, you're just looking out to the audience. But in this, you have audience in front of you. You got audience on the sides and behind you. And as a comment, to go up there and get a laugh. When you get a laugh and you feel laugh, you feel the laughter hitting you from behind, hitting you from the side, because you can actually feel it. Mm. Because it, 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 there's a sound to it, and it, and you can physically feel it. It's like that was absolutely awesome. So truly, one of my best memories of the entire tour was that wow. final show that we did in Sydney. Well, I'm biased because I am Australian. And I love my own country, but I also love Americans. <laughs> and I've been told a lot that Ameri Australians actually look up to Americans and it's a complete opposite as well for you guys. You kind of, you kind of love Australians. It's like, it's funny. Like we're kind of, yeah. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm curious yeah, to know. I think, yeah. I think Americans, I think Americans will see Australians in many cases as kind of like a slightly more fun version of us yeah, or something like that. You know, like you, <laughs> Yeah, you guys, you guys are a little more chill. I mean, one of the things that I, I didn't know about Australia is I guess you guys have notoriously bad service at restaurants. That like, <laughs> it's just like, yeah, if the waitress shows up, she shows up. If you get your food, you get your food. If it's the wrong order, you just eat it. Yeah. You know, like there's just like a more relaxed atmosphere there. Maybe that's because you guys are an island. You know, you're, you've got water <laughs> around you. Things are a little bit easier. We got to do with Canada, you know? You got to come back here. And when you do come back here, I'll take you to all the great restaurants and I mean, cafes that I know because I know the owners and you don't have to wait too long for your service. <laughs> and if you get it, I, if will, you get it wrong, I will gladly take you up on that. We're, we're definitely going to do. Sorry, you, you I, go, I'll take yeah. you up on that. We're going we're gonna to do an Australian tour for sure. Oh, when, awesome. When things get back to normal. Awesome. So I'm curious to know as well, like you, you've been around Jordan Peterson for a long period of time. What was one thing that you took away from Jordan that you've, you've never taken away from anyone else? That if you truly say what you believe, and if what you believe is good and just and right, you can change the world. 
Mm. You know, it's like, I know a lot of people think he was like Superman or something, or like he's almost not human, what he did. But I know that the man was human. I spent a lot of time with him off camera, off stage, uh, being a regular guy, taking a walk, going to lunch, you know, like taking a car ride on the road. And he's a regular man, I assure you of that. And what he tried to do was write something true, which is what he did with all rules. And then he tried to apply that to the world. And by doing that, he actually changed the world. Mm. And I think anyone is capable of doing that. I really do. Mm. Definitely. So, Dave, I want to talk to you about your new book for a moment and give you a chance to sort of publicize it and tell people about it a little bit more and why they should buy it. So what is Don't Burn This Book? What inspired you to write it? And why do people need to read it? Well, what is Don't Burn This Book? Look, this is, this is what I think about everything. These are, I think what I lay out in this book are time-tested, generationally churned, common-sense ideas on how people can live freely. And then not only that, I blend it with some of my own personal story about my political evolution, about a bit, and how uh, people can start fighting for what they believe. The, the purpose of the book is not to convince you that I'm right about everything purpose of the book is to, um, sorry, my, my mic went crazy there for a sec. Uh, the purpose of the book is not to get you to agree with me on everything. The purpose is to get you to think for yourself. If you read this book and you go, man, Dave is really off on, you know, those two or three things, but I'm going to think about them and I'll send him a tweet about it. It's like, mm -hmm. that is, that is just great. So I want to show people you can stand up to the mob. You should fight for free speech. You should say, I can have all sorts of thoughts and I don't have to say I'm, I'm a Democrat or I'm a Republican or whatever, uh, that you can, you can come up with a cohesive set of views that will, that will enrich your life. And mm -hmm. why did I write it? Because I believe in that. And I think the world is in a strange place where people aren't that sure what they believe. And I wanted to help give them the courage to do that. Mm, that's good. Where can people buy the book? Well, I, I believe that our, uh, Australian publisher is through the UK. So I think you guys have to go to the UK Amazon site, okay. uh, but probably even easier. If you just go to, if you just go to don't burn this book.com, one of the links there will take you to some place that you can get it in Australia. And I know, I know we're doing pretty well out there, mm. uh, but Amazon's probably the best spot. I'll make sure that the links are all in the, the bio when this does come out. So I have two more questions for you, Dave, if you don't mind. And yep. second last question is, what is your favorite film, your favorite actor, and the last movie that you watched? Ha! Ah, my favorite film, um, you know, my favorite film, like if I just had to watch something tonight, mm. uh, Total Recall, the original oh, Schwarzenegger wow. movie. Yes. You know, I think it's 1987 or 1988, 89. It is just a perfect 80s movie. It's a brilliant uh sci-fi story written by Philip K. Dick, who wrote yep. a million other great sci-fi stories. And it's just, it's, uh, the, the technologically it was, it was cutting edge for its time. The music is great. Sharon Stone is in it. I love, I love dystopian future kind of stuff. Mm. Um, so yeah, I'd say total recall, just perfect. Um, my favorite actor. Wow. Um, I've been asked a lot of questions in the last week. Nobody has asked me my favorite actor, my favorite actor. Man, um, I love this question. <laughs> yeah, this is good. This it, it is gets good. People. I'm really trying to come up. 
I'm, I'm trying to come up with somebody that I really just consistently like. Like I see their stuff and I, and I consistently mm. like them. Who do you resonate with um, the most? You know, I don't know that I have, I don't know that I have an answer mm. for this. It's like, I could just, I could just come up with the name of an actor that I like, but I, I don't know that I, I'll tell you something that I'm watching right now that I'm absolutely loving. I'm, I'm watching the Sopranos. I'm rewatching it. I watched it, you know, 15 years ago, rewatching it right now. I'm in the midst of season five and it's just absolutely, absolutely brilliant. Um, and it's nice to watch things that aren't about the time that we're in right now. It's yeah, nice to watch yeah. things that are a little bit time capsule themselves. Just get your brain away from everything out of norm normality, so to speak, and, and just yeah. associate yourself with entertainment, just purely mind numbing stuff. So Dave, we need it. Sometimes. Yeah, we do. We do. We really do. So my last question for you, Dave, is you've reached a hundred years old and as a birthday present, your friends have put together a mixtape of everything that you've said and everything you've ever done and they've played it for you. What do you want that mixtape to say and to show? Well, I hope that it'll show that I was somebody that honestly fought for what I believe in and that the ideas that I put forth, hopefully in a hundred years ago, a hundred years from now, hopefully those ideas will have taken root even stronger. Hopefully mm. we won't live in a totalitarian dystopian sci-fi future. Hopefully we'll live in a, a, whatever country it is that we live in. Hopefully our countries are free or our, our people are free to say what they think and, and fight for what they believe in and everything else. And that people will look at that, you know, 80 years of work that I put out there publicly and, and said, you know, this guy was one of the people that tried his best in a weird mm. time. Mm, that's really good man and i feel like that is a perfect way to end our conversation dave rubin thank you so much for your time my friend really appreciate it and for coming on the storybox podcast thank you thank you i've enjoyed talking to you and i'm going to take you up on those restaurants when i get back out to australia uh, i'll put it in my calendar man just like literally reach out whenever you want and i'll take you <laughs> i know people <laughs> all right thanks dave Sounds good, appreciate, man. It. appreciate it thank thanks you all right bye-bye I don't like this part because it means that sadly we have come to an end of yet another incredible story. I just want to say thank you to all of you for tuning in and listening to our guest today. It is my prayer that you would have felt inspired, motivated, challenged in some way, and that you would have learned something new as well. If you like to hear more amazing stories like this one, you can do so now by searching up the story box on any podcast platform. It's that easy. If you did get something from our guest today, please share it around to a friend or family member that you think could benefit from hearing this powerful story. And before you go, please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It will only take 30 seconds and it will go towards reaching more people. Let's start changing lives through powerful stories like this one. Your support is greatly appreciated. Until next time, when we dive back into the story box, I'm Jay Phantom, and don't forget, your story is worth more than you know. I'll catch you next time. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.